Adrian Marie Brown, who's the author of Emergent Strategy, talks about um, thinking about justice in fractals, which are these sort of patterns in nature. Think of like a fern, where it's like the small pattern and then it's repeated and repeated and gets bigger. And Adrian Marie Brown talks about that as well, being like, you start enacting justice or you start enacting the thing you want to see, even at the smallest level. So maybe you don't know how to scale it up. Maybe you don't know how to do the big thing. You start to do it in the little ways as you're also working on the big thing and you sort of do it all at once. It seems, it feels to me like a similar kind of thing. It's like, we start living into the future we want to see rather than waiting for it to show up. Hello friends, I'm Nick LaPara and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. The show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Friends, where have you been the last few weeks? I'm kidding. Where have I been the last few weeks is the question. This is our first show in about five or six weeks. It wasn't a planned break per se, but it ended up being one. Uh, I was on vacation. Then my producer was on vacation. Then a couple of guests had to postpone. Then I had to postpone a time or two. Summers are weird and hard and wild, but we are back and more excited than ever for the guests we have lined up for this end of summer and beginning of autumn. So stay tuned. My guest today is a brilliant journalist and writer and thinker. You've seen her name at some point on major publications all over the place because she's written for pretty much everyone at this point. Her name is Whitney Bauk. Whitney uses unique angles to bring people into the climate conversation. On her Instagram, at unwrinkling, follow her immediately. She tells stories in ways that help all kinds of people feel like they can do something and help out in regard to our climate crisis. Now, I was planning on doing a monologue for this week and sharing a bunch of stuff on my mind lately to get us back into the swing of things after this unplanned break. But then on Sunday, the Senate passed a climate tax and health care package, one that has been in the works for a long time and one that very few of us thought would ever pass making it the largest single American investment to slow global warming to happen in most of our lifetimes. This is huge news. And I wanted to talk about it with someone who knows the climate space well. Now, we admittedly aren't going to do a deep dive today. We are staying very surface level. Why? Because it just passed on Sunday and it's 750 plus pages. And really most of us shouldn't be reading the whole thing anyway, because most of us wouldn't be able to make sense of it all. But I wanted to talk at a very high level with a very smart journalist. So I emailed Whitney and we recorded yesterday within four hours of her responding to my email, we were recording in her living room and now you're listening to it today. In addition to talking about this bill, we also talk about her upbringing in the Philippines, her work in the ethical fashion space, why she is transitioning to a broader body of work in the climate space, and so much more. The last few minutes of the podcast are especially helpful. I hope you'll listen all the way through because I know if you get to the end, you'll be super encouraged about the work we have in front of us. As I thought about our conversation and prepared to record this intro and outro, I thought about this quote from Queen Glennon Doyle. 
I want us all to think about this as we listen to this conversation and as we engage in climate work now and in the future. Quote, we are all bilingual. We speak the language of indoctrination, but our native tongue is the language of imagination. When we use the language of indoctrination with its should and shouldn'ts, with its right and wrong, good and bad, we are activating our minds. That's not what we are going for here because our minds are polluted by our training. In order to get beyond our training, we need to activate our imaginations. Our minds are excuse makers. Our imaginations are storytellers. So instead of asking ourselves what's right or wrong, we must ask ourselves what is true and beautiful. End quote. And that quote pairs very beautifully with another quote that we talk about toward the end of the podcast. So make sure you listen all the way through. I hope this conversation and the work that you're inspired to do after you listen come from an awakened imagination, ready to sell stories and ready to get to work and ready to pursue what is true and beautiful. Before we dive into this conversation, a quick reminder as always, that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com anytime for any reason to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now let's get right into my conversation with the amazing Whitney Bauk. Let's go. Whitney Bauk, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you especially because you answer my request and within like three hours of us talking about doing a podcast, I think we're doing the podcast. Here it's we are. Literally, it was this morning, you responded to my email and I'll get into why I wanted to do it now. For one, just scheduling. I have podcasts booked out into September. It's always several weeks out and I had a cancellation or a postponement rather. And then this bill came up on Sunday, which we'll talk about. And so it just made sense. Hey, let me just, I'll either do a monologue this week or I can get somebody that knows what the hell they're talking about to talk about these things. And you came through. So happy to be your plan B. Thank anytime. you. <laughs> and I'm just so glad we could have done this virtually as, as well as most interviews have been happening that way over the last couple of years. But it, it was an hour train ride into Brooklyn. And so, yeah. so glad we can do this. And for those listening, I will shut up here in a second, but you might hear a hum in the background. Sorry, not sorry, because it's 91 degrees in New York right now. And most of you who live around the U.S. in places where air conditioning is just a given in your home. You have central air. All the rooms are the same temperature right now. Not so in New York. We all have individual window units in each one of our rooms, and we choose, based on how much money we want to spend on electricity that month, we choose which rooms go on when and at what point. Um, and so we have an air conditioning unit running, and sorry, we don't want to faint during our conversation. So deal yeah. with it. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, tell, let's let's do this. You've done a lot of cool shit. Um, give me an overview of who you are now, what you're doing right now. I do want to backtrack and talk a little bit about, I heard from a little birdie that you grew up in the Philippines, correct? Correct. So I want to touch on that a little bit because I too grew up overseas. We are the products of growing up not here. And I want to hear more about that because I, I know that part about you, but I don't know the specifics around it or how specific you want to get. But Growing up overseas is cool. 
I'm a product of it. I wouldn't have changed one bit about it. So we'll backtrack a little bit to that, but let's start in the present. When you introduce yourself to people, who do you say that you are? What do you say that you do? Yeah, so I'm Whitney Bauk. I am a journalist who's focused on uh, climate and the environment. Um, as of now, I am a freelancer, so that's been true for about a year and a half, and I write for the New York Times, the Financial Times, Washington Post, a bunch of other places that you've heard of. You could list them for a long time. Um, my background before that was in writing about the human rights and environmental impacts of the fashion industry, and before that, I did a fair bit of religion reporting. So reported on a lot of things, but um, reporting on climate change is really what sort of lights my fire right now and is what I'm really focused on and really want to tell sort of solutions-focused stories in that realm. Because I know for a lot of people, talking about climate change can be really scary and overwhelming, and it can sort of like shut people down and make people feel really paralyzed. And I get that, but I think it's a really crucial space to pay attention to. And so some of my hope with my reporting is to sort of bring in new people into that conversation who might not be paying attention to it otherwise, whether I do that through sort of unique angles or through highlighting solutions, um, but really trying to help us engage with the climate story and, and find our place in it. One of the main things that attracted me to your social media posts uh, a few months ago, I guess last year when I first found you, was that part. Is that not that you're not, un not that you're unwilling to have the real raw conversations about what's actually happening and when, you know, when we're heading in a, in a wrong direction. But so much of your content is more than hopeful. It's just here are good solutions, right? So it doesn't always feel hopeful, but there are definitely like, hey, that's something that I can take. That's a thing I can think about and potentially change in my life, right? That's one of the reasons that, you know, one of my former podcast guests, Professor Catherine Hayhoe, it's one of the things it rubs me sometimes the wrong way about her work and platform, but in the best kind of way that like sometimes with people that are more solutions oriented and are more hopeful in this climate space. Again, I have this, I know they're right. I know you're right. When I look at your work, I'm like, that is the way to be. I also sometimes get caught in this well, it's not more fun, but it's easier to get caught in these doomsday, like all the things that we're doing wrong, right? That's right. that. Well, a that's going to get more clicks and shares and likes. It there's this fear factor around it. Like, mm -hmm. what are all the things we're doing wrong? But I do know in my in my heart of hearts and in my soul and in my mind, I know that the the right way is to focus on the solutions because that's how we get out of this thing. That's how we actually move forward. Is not just to focus on what we're doing wrong, but actually to provide people with solutions, right? Right. And I think there's there's sort of a danger in either direction of either being too doomerous where you act like, I already know what's going to happen and it's going to be bad, or in, in sort of a false optimism that says, I already know it's going to be happen and we're going to be fine. Because both of those are a way of letting yourself out of action and of being implicated in any way. Um, Rebecca Solnit wrote this book called Hope in the Dark, which has been really formative for how I think about some of this. And that's sort of where she, she talks about hope as living in that in-between space. It's not about sort of an optimism that assumes everything's going to be fine, so I'm off the hook. It's about saying, listen, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. It could be really bad. It could be really good. It's important for us to understand the facts and recognize in that space of unknowing, there's space to act. And that, to me, is sort of what it's all about. It's like, how do we occupy that space? And how do we really, like, live with that tension of not knowing necessarily what the outcomes are going to be. But again, like finding where we fit into this story. 
Yeah, a bunch of what we're going to talk about today is going to focus on the both and nature of the climate crisis, how we live, how we report, how we write. Um, we definitely need to stay in the both and. Before we get to all that, you said you've been a freelance. This is a very like practical, simple question, but I'm interested. What do you like better, freelancing or having that you know consistent paycheck coming? Because I've done both. I just told you before I got on, we're going on year actually seven of me being self-employed, doing the work that I'm doing. And I love the freedom that I get to do virtually whatever the hell I want mm -hmm. and make whatever I want. But that I do sometimes miss that every two week paycheck that, you know, just the consistency there. I don't think that's freedom necessarily, but it is nice in some aspects of life now that I have three kids and everything to, yeah. to, to expect that every other Thursday or whatever the case may be. So what do you, but what do you like better? Oh, that's tough. I think there are things I really like about either of them. I mean, I'm a very social person and I liked working on a team and I definitely miss that. I mean, I like, I work in my apartment. I li like live in my little room. So there are, there are things I miss a lot about, you know, working on a team, but I've really liked getting to work with a wide range of editors, which is what, you know, I'm doing sort of as a journalist and getting to write for a bunch of different newspapers and knowing sort of when I find a story, okay, you know, where's the best place for this? Like, what's the audience I want to reach for this? And that's, that's fun to sort of have that um, flexibility. And it's also been, you know, a sort of, I've, I've been pivoting myself. It's been helpful to be able to be in this space to just really focus on the kinds of climate and environment stories I want to be telling, um, and then just like find a home for them. So there's really, there's benefits and tradebacks. Tradebacks? We're going to say that. We're going to say that's a word. Maybe trade-ins? Trade-ins? Tra tradebacks? Tradebacks. Setbacks? I, I, setbacks? No, I don't know. <laughs> it's a combination of all of those. No, I, 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 and again, maybe the both and plays into I, I like the tension of where I live right now, um, in my work and in my career, because yeah, I, most of my friends make that are in my stage of life, late thirties kids, you know, fit, you know, looking at the next stage of life, make a lot more money than I do. But I would say that I would not trade anything that I'm doing. I feel like I'm building you know, with Let's Give a Damn and all the projects that we're building and, you know, the TV show and the different things that we're doing, I wouldn't trade that for any stable paycheck because I really do get just get to, I have carte blanche, I get to dream. Um, and when, once I figure out that dream is even sort of remotely in this universe of attainability, then I go after it, you know, and I don't have yeah. to ask anybody for permission. Yeah. So I, I like it. Um, so I have a lot of, okay, where do we go here? Let's go back to the beginning or as far back as you want to go to talk generally about where you grew up and how you grew up, because I want to know that just personally, whenever I meet people that grew up outside the United States, I just want to spend all my time talking to them about that, because that to me was the greatest gift that I was ever given by the universe was to not grow up here. I live here now for the foreseeable future. Um, so go back to when you lived overseas? Where did you live? What was the sort of the feel of your surroundings? What did that teach you? Do you find yourself lucky to have done that? Or would you have preferred to grow up here? Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So I grew up in the Philippines and moved to the U.S. basically for college. So when I was about 18, um, I loved it. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm like you and that I wouldn't have traded it for anything. It was very, very um, formative in sort of every way, really shaped who I am in a lot of ways. Um, and I think about that 
now, especially in this stage of my career, as I am focusing more on climate. So I, you know, growing up in Manila, there's, it's, there's a lot of really uneven development. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of wealth and there's a lot of really highly concentrated wealth and there's a lot of poverty and you sort of see them right next to each other and on top of each other in a way that's pretty unique. I mean, New York is actually maybe one of the places in the U S sure. New York and LA are yeah. maybe some places where you see that in that way. But, um, it really is like, there'll be a squatter village right next to like the fancy mansions and, you know, gated communities. So I think that sort of shaped a lot of my, my early, um, just like my heart and my mind and my early career. Um, when I was sort of starting out and writing a lot about the fashion industry, was really paying attention to sort of the human rights impacts because I, I just had no interest in being involved in that industry unless it meant focusing on the people who are sort of getting the short end of the stick. Um, and then in 2019, I went home for three months. So I went home for the whole summer, which is like the longest I had been back to the Philippines since I left. You know, it mostly had been shorter trips to visit family yeah, or sure. the holidays or whatever before that point. And somehow I had never, like I'd been writing about the environment and writing about climate stuff sort of more broadly, but somehow until that summer, I had never really researched how climate change is impacting and will impact the Philippines. And it really like flipped a switch for me. Mm. Um, I was in high school when the worst typhoon that's ever hit Manila hit Manila. And, you know, it was a huge deal at the time. And like, I have all these really distinct memories of, you know, the entire city of, you know, 22 million people or whatever shut down for like weeks. Wow. My school shut down. I had been having a sleepover at my friend's house. So I was like not able to get home for oh, wow. three days. There was no power. All the roads were flooded. I mean, I have these stories that like, even thinking back on them now, I'm like, that's like saying them out loud sounds crazy. Like one of my classmates had a story of like boating down the road on a, an inflatable air mattress and like, helping pull a kid out of the water. I had like teenage, again, classmates who were like swimming home. I mean, it's just, it was an insane, insane thing to see. And so I think when I started researching and realizing the Philippines is the most vulnerable nation in the world to climate change, or one of the most, depending oh, wow. on sort of how, who you ask, which mm -hmm. for a number of reasons um, related to sort of geography, it's a nation of over 7,000 islands, where it's located on the globe, there's not really any buffer between it and all the storms that come through. And then there's also all these things about infrastructure and sort of the concentration of wealth. Um, so anyway, realizing how much of a risk climate change poses to places like the Philippines, it was like, this doesn't feel like some future thing to me anymore. Like I, I know what my hometown looks like underwater. I don't have to imagine that. Like I've seen that firsthand and being an American citizen and a person who for the most part lives in the U S and can vote in U S elections, but has so much of my heart in this other place, it really was this like, okay, this is no longer one issue of many issues. Like this is, this is the thing, like, this is what I need to be focused on because I have this sort of unique insight into this place that's on the front lines of the challenge. But I'm also a citizen of this place that has a disproportionate amount of power and is doing a disproportionate amount of the, the polluting. Um, so I think, I mean, the Philippines has shaped me in many ways and I, I wasn't, you know, thinking about climate change as a kid growing up and typhoons sure. are a part of life there. Right. Um, but I think as an adult, I'm increasingly realizing that it's really shaped the trajectory of, of my, my work in my life, even when I'm not directly reporting on the Philippines, it's always a little bit in the back of my mind when we're talking about global emissions, because again, like I know what my hometown looks like underwater. I don't have to imagine what the impacts are going to be like. 
one of my favorite things about growing up overseas was exactly not in the climate space was what you, you, you were faced with so many realities that so many of our peers that grew up in the West in, you know, Iowa or Kentucky or wherever, even in the very wealthy parts, you know, even in the coastal cities, like they, they never have to see them face those realities or I shouldn't say never, but very rarely you have to go looking for them where in the places where you and I grew up, I grew up in Guatemala, different sort of environment, different part of the world, obviously, but a lot of those, whether it was income inequality, whether it was ridiculous, uh, wealth disparity, you know, huge mansions, bodyguards, you know, full-time maids and nannies and gardeners, and then right outside, just shacks and slums. You know, I saw that from when I was a kid and I was never able to recover from that. I didn't want to recover from it, but I was never able to forget those things that I experienced. And it changed me. It changed. uh, I, I think it, it shaped the trajectory of my, I can't do certain things in life. I can't live certain ways because of what I've seen and experienced. Totally. I cannot unthink and unsee and unexperience the things that I've done. Therefore, I'm set up for the rest of my life with whether it's just these reminders. Like there are just certain things that I'll never be able to participate in yeah. or bring myself to do or buy uh, or not buy because of what I've seen. I yeah. can't unsee it. And then Later on, I don't know how much travel you did after that. I spent six years traveling the world after living there. We came back around the same time. I came back for college. Um, never ended up going to college. Well, at least not then. Traveled the world for six years. So then I spent six years spending time in some of the richest and the poorest countries in the world. You know, sleeping on, you know, the floor in a bug net in Hyderabad, India, or, you know, in Zambia, Africa, like those types of places and then staying in really nice hotel rooms in Vienna, Austria. And then, you know, those, so I, then I went six years of getting out of that, but not coming back here. Hmm. I still spent it just seeing all the ups and downs and yeah, I, I'll never be able to, I'm grateful for it. Are you grateful for it? Like, I'm it, so grateful yeah, for it, it. it seems like it really set you up for all the stuff you're doing now. Yeah. And I, it's also just, I mean, the Philippines is an amazing place. Like the people are incredibly sort of inventive and creative and hospitable. The, the like land itself is so, so stunning. I mean, I like grew up in the tropics, like grew up going to the beach and being outside all the time because it's really warm. I mean, there are so many things about the Philippines that are, it's just a, like, it's just a really magical place. And that's not to say it doesn't have its issues like any sure. place, but I think, I guess what it comes down to is like part of the reason I feel passionate about climate stuff is because I feel passionate about fighting for places like the Philippines. And the reason I feel passionate about fighting for places like the Philippines is because like the Philippines is amazing. Like to me, it's like anyone, I dare anyone to go there and, you know, spend time in some of the best that the Philippines has to offer and not fall in love with that place. And when you add sort of all the layers that come with some place feeling like home to you, it's like, yeah, this, this is a place that I love and I, I want to see it thrive. And so, you know, whatever small, tiny grain of sand of contribution I can make to that. Like I want to try to do. Do you think you'll ever like relocate to somewhere overseas or do you feel like, okay, I did that. I'll visit, but here is home. Or do you struggle? Or like, do you go back and forth on that? Because I know not, <laughs> I love New York. Greatest place in the world. Like hands down, this city is the best of the best and you get everything really. One of the reasons I love it is because it's not 
one thing. You get everybody. You get every language, every cuisine. You want the wealthiest and you want the poor. It's all here. I love it. And because of what's happening in the rest of our country, for better or for worse, like not a, I shouldn't say a day, not a week goes by where I think again, once again about, hey, we should go. I think we'd be better off living here or there or elsewhere. Do you go through that or are you firmly like, no, I live here and this, I love it here? It's funny. I never really thought I would live in the U.S. until I spent time in New York. And New York was sort of the first place that I could envision myself. And the first time my mom came and visited, she was like, oh, I see why you like New York. It's like vanilla. Like a lot of the things that I think are hard for people about places like New York, it's like, oh, like it's a big, dirty city. There's, you know, it's loud, whatever. I'm like, oh, well, I live, I mean, New York is what, 9 million? Manila is like 22. I mean, it's just. It's a smaller version of what you grew up experiencing. (laughs) Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I, I will never say never. I mean, I definitely want, right now I'm really interested in looking at ways to get to go do some more climate reporting from the Philippines. So if anyone listening to this podcast wants to fund a reporter going to the Philippines to do climate reporting, hit me up. Um, I don't, I I don't necessarily know what's, what's ahead, but I, I feel like I'm going where, where I know there's work for me to do. And right now that's here. And if down the line, that's somewhere else, I'll sort of follow it. It's interesting to hear how you're framing it though. Like I think, yeah, when people talk about leaving the U S in like having a healthcare that system that functions or having, you know, some of the, the amenities that other places have to offer, isn't really what motivates me. I think it's actually like the thing that part of what made me feel like I could stay in the U S was recognizing like feeling like I was starting to get a handle on what America's problems were. Mm. Um, I'm very motivated by challenge. So I think there is a sense of like, when I can see a place's problems and have some sense of how I might fit into, you know, the response to that, I'm much more motivated to be there. And America has a lot of problems. So (laughs) there's a lot of work to get done here. It's so true. Not in the climate space, but I'm a huge, one of my heroes, definitely top five, maybe top three, James Baldwin, motivates me in every which way. I love studying everything he has written, said. And, you know, James had to leave for different reasons. I mean, he actually said, if I don't leave, I'm going to kill someone or they're going to kill me. One of the two, right? The whole different situation. But I had Eddie Glaude Jr. uh, from Princeton on the podcast, wrote an amazing book called Begin Again about uh, Baldwin. And I asked Eddie straight up, I was like, convince me, because even though his whole, the whole book and a lot of what he studies is about a guy who had to leave to live in Europe and kind of see America from Europe in to be able to speak into the problems here. I said, like, convince me not to leave because I want to leave. Like, Mm -hmm. I have three kids. Not a day goes by that they don't go to school where I go to school praying them all the way to school thinking that this could be the last time that I see my kid because we don't take fucking gun control seriously. Mm -hmm. And that's one problem out of, you know. Yeah. And it was a similar response from a black professor at Princeton who studied James Baldwin more than I ever can. He said, like, this is where, this is how things don't change. Yeah. Unless the people that might want to leave because of all the crap here stay. Yeah. And actually, yeah, stay throughout their lives. And hopefully their kids pick up the mantle or people that they influence pick up the mantle and keep the work going because that's how these things change. We can leave. It's not cowardly to leave. I encourage a lot of people like, yeah, leave, go expat your, you know, go live elsewhere. It's amazing out there. Believe me. 
that's not cowardly to 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 run quote unquote run from America's problems. I think there's a lot of valid reasons for doing that. But then there are some of us who have certain skills. People listen to me, not at a huge you know celebrity level, but like people listen to me. Yeah, and they change people change how they think about something because I share a certain perspective or have a conversation with somebody. Same with you. People are influenced by your, like people like us should probably stay because of the problems and because we can hopefully inch by inch, sometimes millimeter by millimeter, like change the narrative, move a certain number of people forward in whatever the issue is, right? So that's the only reason I'm still here is because, because I see a benefit of, A, we get to live in New York, it's amazing here, but also, yeah, I don't wanna leave because there's work to be done. Mm-hmm. There's work to be done. Yeah. Um, before we get into, I have questions about a lot of the stuff you've written about in the past on a lot of the work that you've done on the, in the past on ethical fashion and how that affects you know, our climate crisis and just our, our people and how we pay them and how they live and all that stuff. Before we get to that though, one of the reasons that I want, wanted slash needed to have you on today we would have done it eventually. But over the weekend, let's spend a few minutes talking about this climate tax and healthcare package that kind of came over the weekend. Yesterday, right? It was So it just got passed, passed in the, in the Senate. Senate. Now yeah. it's got to go. But but it's but it's kind of a sure thing at this point, right? Like it's not been done yet, but it's going probably yes, it probably. seems very likely to pass likely. and it could be within, you know, the next week right. that it ends up on President Biden's desk. And this is a huge, so we're not going to talk about the tax and healthcare part of it because that's not our expertise. Mm. And we're also not going to do a deep dive here. You haven't had a chance to read the 700 plus page bill. (laughs) I definitely haven't. But I thought this is worth at least touching it from a surface level because this is a huge, this is, this will be one of the defining bills of the Biden presidency and one of the largest single American investments to slow uh, global warming and our climate crisis that's happened in a long, 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 long time. The, the biggest, the biggest that's happened okay. ever in American take, take, history. Take away the one of, yeah. it is the biggest. So this is huge. This is monumental, especially since now that we're 230 episodes into this podcast and if people have tracked all along and we've probably done 30 or 40 episodes that are in some way relate to the climate crisis, people know where we stand Everybody's on board with what we're going to talk about today. Everybody's excited about what's going to happen. And I wanted to sort of lean in again at a surface level, very big disclaimer. You haven't had a chance to do a deep dive. I definitely haven't. But you did share on Instagram a few things yesterday. And again, I think you've, you probably, because of, this is your area of expertise, you know more than any of us listening. So can you, from a surface level, give us an overview of what is in that bill and what it means for us in the future. Yeah, so the, 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 the sort of top level view is just that this is the biggest investment in, in reducing emissions that any government has made in my entire lifetime. Since before I was born, the American government has been sort of yep. talking about climate policy. We've been aware of this for a long time. We've known that it's a problem. Um, and 
the U.S. Senate is sort of notorious in, in global politics for being unable to pass any real climate policy. It's sort of what we're known for yep. to a point that it's, it's kind of felt like a foregone conclusion to a lot of people. Um, the 2009 Obama uh, pro- proposed a sort of um, carbon tax. That was the last that was the last time that the U.S. has tried to pass like a really big effort to slow climate change. And um, that bill failed. And that is looked at. I mean, if you talk to people in the climate space, like there are so many people who talk about that specific failure as as shaping the trajectory of their lives, like shaping why they're doing what they're doing now, because they saw that massive failure. And it it really changed their their sense of like, what can the government actually get done? Right. So then with this with this current um, Senate, you know, this this bill has been in negotiation negotiations for like 18 months, something like that. It's been this huge back and forth. It was originally called Build Back Better. Um, and it's all sort of hinged on Senator Manchin from West Virginia, who is a moderate Democrat and a coal baron who became a millionaire by um, through coal and is, you know basically made his money off of fossil fuels, um, which puts the Democrats in a in a really complicated position. Yep. So it you know it was I don't know a month ago. I mean we, there there's been this was sort of been killed in some iteration many times yeah, in the last right. eighteen months, and it was just it's just been within the last month that suddenly like Schumer and Manchin emerged and said actually they're they're. They have negotiated a deal, which was a total shock to everyone in Washington, to everyone in the climate space. I mean, still, if you ask people what happened, all kinds of pundits can give you different answers to like what changed or, you know, how did this actually happen? The truth is no one really knows. Like no one really knows what's happening inside Manchin's brain. There are a lot of theories about how this changed. But what it comes down to is, you know, we now have is this Inflation Reduction Act. There's there's more money than has ever been put forward before to, you know, invest in renewable energy within the U.S., um, subsidies for electric vehicles, all these sorts of different things. 400 billion, like not a small amount for the electric vehicle, you know, yes. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money that's going to be going into these spaces. So it's a, it's a very big deal. And I guess if you're not, if you've not been in the weeds with this, that's one of the most important things to understand is like, this is the biggest legislation we've ever seen on this. Um, and so it's really, really massive. And it and it kind of shifts the the sort of understanding of what's possible, right? Like before this point, it felt like- Is anything ever gonna get is done? Is everything ever gonna get done? It seems like nothing at the federal level, level is gonna happen. And the US is the like the biggest historical emitter. So, and, and such a global superpower, right? So if the US can't even get its act together, like how are we ever gonna, right. you know, ask other nations to step up? And this coming through feels like a, a real shift in what what feels possible. Um, that said, there are this is still a compromise bill. Like this is not the bill that a lot of you know progressives would have wanted, that a lot of Democrats would have wanted, that a lot of climate advocates would have wanted. There are gifts to oil and gas in here that are there because Manchin had this sort of oversized uh, power in shaping this bill, and he is a fossil fuel millionaire. Um, including some projects that I think are breaking a lot of environmental justice advocates' heart right now. Yeah. Um, the Mountain Valley P- Pipeline is this, this sort of very controversial pipeline that there's been fights over for years and years. And like, it's in this bill that like, basically this needs to be able to move forward. There are things like that, that, you know, reducing emissions overall is important for the entire globe. And it is important for any community that's on the front lines of the climate crisis. And also there are communities that are, 
that are, you know, like the community that lives near the Mountain Valley Pipeline and is going to sort of be, be affected by that, even if global emissions are, are being reduced, they're still going to feel the impact of being near fossil fuel projects. So there's a real sort of tension, I think, that a lot of folks in the climate movement are feeling of recognizing that this is, you know, it's really important what this bill is going to do in terms of reducing emissions. It's also really important that we don't overlook the communities that feel like they've been sacrificed by this bill. Um, and and it's sort of sitting with that tension is, is coming back to that both and that you were talking about, is being able to sort of celebrate the wins in here and also recognizing this in no way means that the fight is over. And if anything, it, it, it should underscore how much we need to be prioritizing environmental justice and saying like, no community is worth sacrificing, especially not black and brown communities, especially not poor communities who tend to be located near fossil fuel infrastructure that's you know, going to increase air pollution, that's going to increase health impacts for those communities. Um, and sort of figuring out how to hold that intention is I think that sort of feels like the mood in a lot of climate spaces. But the, the sort of baseline to come back to is like this bill, based on projections right now, looks like it will it reduce America's emissions by between like 37 and 41% by huge. 2030, yeah. which is a huge difference from where we were. Um, yeah. And that is, you know, that's really worth understanding and recognizing like where, where this will set us up to sort of head. And I've, I've seen some folks saying, you know, like this is the biggest thing that's happened in our lifetimes. And I think a lot of like organizers and advocates are saying, let's say that this will be the smallest from here on out. Yeah. recognizing like this, this needs to be a baseline, yeah, not a baseline. Ceiling. Yep. And now, as you pointed out, these things, again, it's a mixed bag. It's not a perfect bill, but these things should give us hope and create new baselines for, because again, up until in your lifetime and mine, nothing like this has happened. Right. And they told us it couldn't happen. Right. They told us we couldn't get, I have words for mansion but they told us we couldn't get people <laughs> like him yeah you know to make deals like this um and it didn't look like something like this was gonna happen because people like that that say they're on the right team not that the democrats are the right team but more progressive thinkers and like they these kinds of people traditionally hold way too much power right and so yeah i mean it kind of took me by surprise and i feel like i'm in the know and all of a sudden it's like, holy shit, like this is happening. Yeah. And it's in, it's, it's, we're now at the beginning, right. It's not, it's not, it hasn't been signed. It hasn't been brought to, but it looks like it's going to happen. But still that seems to be, it's again, maybe I needed to, no, I did need to grow up a little bit because when I started becoming a true, um, activist and as my politics and even my theology and everything about me became very progressive, especially when looking at how I grew up. I had, I mean, I had all these ideas about how things should be, and I won't take anything less. I won't settle for anything less than perfect, than doing the right thing immediately, right now. I've mentioned a couple times about, you know, I've alluded to it rather, but everybody here knows how I feel about the police and what I would love to happen to this humongous, very powerful system of quote unquote, taking care of things that are happening in society that literally was founded in chasing slaves. Like I, like my 
when I started all of this, it was no, abolish them, be gone. You're, you're like, just cut it off right away. When in reality, that is just not how things work. Most things that we encounter, most progress that we encounter is going to look like this bill where there are so many things that we should praise in it. And there, and then we have to go beyond that and say, who is going to be negatively impacted by this? How can we support them? Now that we've created this new baseline, what can we reach for next? That'll look, maybe it's, maybe this one is 70, 30, like 30% shit, 70% good. Maybe the next one will be 60, 40 or 68, 32, right? Like, um, I don't know. I've just had, this, this feels better to me now. When I was 32, this wouldn't have felt good. No, we're compromising too much. We could have done more. And now I just feel like, yeah, this is how we make progress, right? Little by little by little. Yeah. And there's a whole range of, as you maybe know, within the climate movement, uh, a sort of range of approaches of people who would say, you know, incrementalists who would say, this is how change happens. Others who would say, we just don't have time. Right. And we have, you know, we have to shut it down. And I would say so many of, you know, wherever people fall, the climate movement writ large has helped create the kind of zeitgeist where this is possible in a way that it wasn't possible five years ago and in a way that didn't feel possible five months ago. I mean, the, just the degree to which this was a shock to everybody. I mean, there's literally nobody who saw this coming is, is a reminder that again, it's that, it's that space of hope that Rebecca Solnit talks about where it's like, you neither get the arrogance of saying, I know what happened and it's, I know it's going to happen and it's going to be bad, nor the like, I know it's going to happen. It's going to be good. The truth is you don't know. And so you just have to fight for what is right. And you don't get to say for sure whether or not it's going to work out in your favor. But there is this space of just recognizing what we don't know and and like sort of refusing to give into the hubris of acting like we do. I like that you just pointed out that we have and need both. The we have, it's clear, the increment like the the this is progress. This is a really good thing. And then you have the um the Greta Thunbergs and young people and old people alike, but that are more alarmists about it. We don't have time. We need to change things like right now. Even though that sort of approach um, doesn't, the changes aren't being made that quickly. We need that. I think I love Greta. And I think we need, even though I don't think that's how it gets done a lot of times, we need those voices. We need someone saying, and there's a lot of truth, mostly truth in what she is saying and what you know people that are like that are saying that have gotten us to this place. And then we need, I need to have conversations with, you know, more hopeful voices like Catherine that are saying, we're gonna be okay. Like these small changes that we're making, let's just keep moving forward. Let's keep, you know, counting our wins, let's keep pushing, let's keep prodding. I, I have found, again, a few years ago, not so much. Now, I have found hope, and uh, I've learned a ton from both sides of that equation. And we need both of them. Yeah, and I think it, you know, some of, some of how you receive any news about any of this is related to your social position, right? Like, if I live next to a place where it's really likely they're going to open a new oil refinery, and I know what that's going to mean for air pollution Great in my point. community, and I know what that's going to mean for cancer rates in my community, like, no matter what else is happening... I'm going to fight tooth and nail because I'm going to say, I don't want my, you know, I don't want to see my, my community go up in flames in this way. So, you know, 
Whereas if you live further away from one, you might be able to say 40% reduction in emissions, that's amazing. And it's about recognizing like both of those are, are real things. Like we do need to lower overall emissions. And on the whole, this bill is getting us further in emissions reductions than anything we've had before. And also there are communities that are sort of being treated as sacrifice zones as a result of this. And so there's this, there is just this, I think it's a, there's an instinct to say like, want to give something like an all good or like an all bad kind of sticker. And maybe the truth is like, we have to be willing to sit in more nuance and we don't get to give it like 140 characters, thumbs up or thumbs down. We have to actually try to embrace more nuance, which is really hard to do. Um, But I think, I think is like makes us stronger as a movement when we can do that. Are there any groups or individuals or projects that are doing this well? And the this being having the conversations in such a way where it's honoring all the parties involved and all the views involved? Because I don't, there just aren't a lot of them. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of places where we can go, whether we're talking about the climate or the prison system or the police or whatever, whatever the case may be. That's the hardest thing, I think. And that is also the key, figuring that out figuring out how to honor all the, not the crazy wackos, not the climate deniers. And I'm not, I don't care about accommodating them. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong there, but we do have to hear from them. We're trying to win them over. Point being, like, do you, how, how do we have these conversations better? Where do we have these conversations better? Oh man, I'm like, I could just list you reams and reams of people that I respect and that I learn from. I mean, I know when, when this sort of, Um, News came out from the Senate, some of the places that I went to. So Kendra Pierre-Lewis is a reporter on a podcast at Gimlet um, called How to Save a Planet. She was formerly a reporter at the New York Times. She's someone that I sort of respect her analysis a lot. There are other folks not necessarily like in journalism world. So Rihanna Gunn-Wright is someone who helped co-author the the original Green New Deal and sort of Mm, her commentary on this and her environmental justice perspective is really great. Um, Reverend Lennox Yearwood is another really sort of outspoken voice in this space who's, who sort of has his finger on the pulse with these things. I mean, there's, there's, I could keep going. There's a ton of people who are sort of paying attention to these things. Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, um, who's another sort of climate scientist and also communicator. Um, there are people who are trying to pay attention and figure out how to, how to balance these things. And I think some of that, some of, of engaging with climate stuff well is finding like, who are the, who are the voices I'm going to trust or who are the voices that yeah. I'm going to let sort of inform my thinking around this? Because there's a lot of really smart people saying unhelpful things. There are people who win Pulitzers who write things that are kind of climate doomy. I mean, you just, you have to start learning yeah. how to sort of piece through that and figure out who you want to let inform your view. Um, and that is sort of a challenge, but there are also so many great people in the space that I feel really encouraged by by how many really remarkable people are in this space and and sort of sharing their insight. I love it. I have so much more to ask there, but we better move on for the sake of time. Um, I will definitely, for those listening, we'll link to as many things, including the actual bill. Like everybody should, I, I mean, I'm I'm preaching to myself right now. I need to read the bill. As Honestly, much of it as I don't I know that everybody needs to read the 700 pages of it, but find a good like top line summary. So, yes. So that's, so that's a great point. I, I was literally about to catch myself and you, and you <laughs> caught me because no one listening is going to read 700. Most of these people haven't read a, a book in the last year. Um, Fair. Yeah. You as a journalist, as someone who thinks through journalistic standards and getting things right. Yeah. Where, sh- I mean, for one at unwrinkling, 
everybody should follow you. Thank you. Right? <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, where should people go for these? And you also mentioned everybody that you just mentioned over the last couple of minutes, I will also link to them in the show notes if I can, I'll figure it out. I'll find the timestamp and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, where should they go for in these, in these weeks, in these days and weeks ahead as this thing gets to Biden's desk next week, hopefully, and gets signed and the process begins, um, where should they go for more of a top level analysis that is true? They're going to find truth there. I mean, there are great climate teams that a lot of the really big national newspapers, the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Atlantic, like they have good, you know, sort of climate people on those climate desks. I also want to shout out Grist and Inside Climate News, which are both smaller independent climate newsrooms that do excellent climate reporting. Would really recommend, you know, sort of following them if you're interested in getting your news from a source that's more independent than one of these like big international sort of newspapers. Amazing. Okay. Let's spend uh, our last section together, our last uh, few minutes together, talking about some of your previous work on um, the ethics in fashion specifically, the clothes that we wear, the things that we buy to make ourselves look beautiful and feel beautiful. We've done a huge disservice, that's putting it lightly. We have caused tremendous harm. We are causing tremendous harm to not just people, physical people's lives and well-being, but also to our planet because of our need to buy clothes, buy shoes, buy things that aren't made very well, don't last very long, and are made by people that aren't being treated well, right? Um, How did you get interested in this? How strong is your interest in this still? And I I, I do want to talk about some good Again, we're not going to go super in depth here. We don't have a lot of time left, but yeah, I want to give people a framework, at least a jumping point. We've talked about this a bit on the podcast, but I don't think I've ever talked with anyone specifically about the ethics of clothing, the things that we wear, the things that we put on our bodies um, and what we should be thinking through. So how did you get into it? And um, yeah, then I have a few questions that we'll get into. Yeah. So I got, I mean, I was one of those people who just grew up loving fashion. It was a, it was like a fun way to experiment for me. You know, I was, as soon as I had an allowance and was buying any of my own clothes, I was thrifting. Um, in the Philippines, we have ukai ukai, which is like our version of thrifting. Amazing. Um, and you know, really enjoyed the creativity of that growing up. But I think that, you know, growing up seeing as much sort of like poverty and, and income inequality as I saw, I, it wasn't until I sort of understood the justice angle to fashion that I was really interested in, mm. in writing about it. So I started writing um, shortly before the Rana Plaza collapse in 2013, which was a factory collapse in Bangladesh that uh, killed over a thousand people and injured over 2000 more. Um, and that really, really strongly sort of like shaped my path, just recognizing like this factory was making clothes for a bunch of Western brands. Um, you know, feeling really implicated by that and in that. Um, so I sort of set on this this path of really writing about the human rights and environmental impact of the industry. I could talk a little bit about why I've stepped away from that as well. Um, but I do think to whatever degree we're, we're talking about clothing and clothing matters because bodies matter, right? Like this is how we yes. understand one another. It's like the first language we speak before either of us opens our mouth is I see what you're wearing and I sort of see how you self-present. Um, so there, I think it can, I think clothing can be a very profound and sort of beautiful thing. I also think the fashion industry is deeply, deeply, deeply corrupt and warped. And so to me, it was like, there was no way to sort of engage with it unless I was sort of talking about those things. 
I do. Let's reserve two minutes at the end because I do want to hear about why you're stepping away from this. I, I, I want to address it because you've done such important work and you've said so many and shared so many great things over the past few years as I've been catching up with your work. But let's save that for the end. But it is so important. And again, going back to us growing up, uh, we both grew up in places where a lot of these clothes are made, mm-hmm. right? Guatemala, Philippines, Hondur- like I live right next to Honduras, spent a lot of time there. These are places where a lot of these fast fashion or even slow, not fast fashion, but a lot of the fast fashion places get all their clothes made. It's super cheap. And that's why we can go to H&M and buy a t-shirt out the door for like nine bucks. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Who's getting hurt in the process? How, how can you make a shirt for $9, right? Um, so because we can't get super into this, this is important work. How can we, I think there's enough out there. Again, I don't, there's enough out there. People can learn about what there's documentaries. There are books. People can learn why this is wrong and why we need to pay attention to it. We don't need to get into that right now. I think what would be helpful is out of your abundance of work in this area, how do we, People come up with excuses all day long as to why they can't do this, right? I don't make enough money to buy the right kinds of clothes from all these companies and that are doing it right. And I think we're thinking about it all wrong. I think you and I are both interested in, in repurposing things and buying secondhand. Most of what I buy is secondhand. In fact, I just, so I went six years. Uh, I actually gave a TED, TEDx talk about living out of one duffel bag in a backpack for two years. And so all my clothes were, I didn't, and I didn't rebuy throughout that whole time. I had two pairs of jeans, six t-shirts, one button down shirt. And that was basically it. Mm-hmm. And the, the fruit of that is me still wearing, like, I just wear black basically every day mm-hmm. and I keep it super simple and I wear things out till they are threadbare. And then I try to, you know, buy secondhand or buy things that are ethically made. Can you help us in the next few minutes think through what are the things we should be thinking through? What are the lies that we're believing that are really easily overcomable? Um, What is the fashion industry telling us that we need to ignore? Oh, man, so many things. Um, I know. I wish we had another hour. (laughs) Maybe we'll do a part two at some point. This is a huge huge topic. Yeah. So I guess in terms of like a very baseline and how to approach it, uh, I spent a lot of time in my career sort of focusing on how to help people buy better things, how to you know, search for something that's made ethically and made in a way that doesn't harm the planet and all of that. Um, and, you know, there's some merit to that. I think that, the, you know, the market shifting does send signals to companies, blah, 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 blah. But really what it comes down to is like wearing your stuff, like you said, until it wears out. Like yeah. I would rather buy someone buy something from a yucky fast fashion brand that has terrible human rights stuff in its supply chain and then wear it to death than buy some, you know, gorgeous artisan thing and wear it two times and then send it to a thrift store. Because the other thing is like, when you donate something to a thrift store, it's not necessarily going to get resold. Like it's going to get shipped overseas. When what we got in the Philippines was shipped from Hong Kong and from Korea and from the UK, a lot of our stuff in the US is going to places like Ghana. And you can look up the the OR foundation, the OR foundation. They put a lot out about sort of the, the textile waste in Ghana that they're receiving from all over the rest of the world. And it's polluting their beaches, it's polluting their landfills. Um, so clothing, once you're done with it, doesn't go away. There is no away. Like it all has to go somewhere. And I guess part of my approach has <laughs> moved from focusing on how do we convince people to buy secondhand or whatever to 
recognizing again, like how does change actually happen? And I no longer believe that change happens through sort of like consumer action to that degree. Where change is actually starting to happen is when we, we care enough about it to organize and sit through boring meetings and call our senators. So there is, you know, for, for it's been relatively recent that the so-called ethical fashion community has started to realize this. But it's right. after decades of focusing on consumer action and saying, like, you should buy this, not that. Or you should, you know, do, do this rather than that. And recognizing, like, listen we don't trust the auto industry or the big tobacco to regulate themselves. Nope. We recognize that there are these really powerful industries that can do a lot of harm when they're, when they're sort of let, let go into the wild with no sort of restraints. Why are we not doing that with fashion? It's this massive, massive industry. So here in the US, um, the Garment Worker Protection Act just passed in LA within the last year, which is sort of a big move in just terms of getting workers there paid a, a a, a like real minimum wage, right? Which is again like the bar is in the freaking basement. Yeah. Like we, you were talking really basic yep. things. There's another. Um, there's another few sort of pieces of policy that people are looking at right now: the Fashion Act and the Fabric Act that are both sort of trying to address some of these things as well. But this is where again I would say I think in the West we tend to have a very sort of like individualist mindset and think you know like I want my hands to be pure. I want to not have brought something into my closet that wasn't made ethically. Right, right. And I totally fed into that yeah. for years as a writer. And increasingly, I would say, you know, the way that we are going to solve the climate crisis is not by me having the correct light bulbs. It's going to be by passing the kind of legislation that it yep. can actually create either tax incentives or, you know, regulations or whatever it is. And the same is true with fashion. It's this massive industry. There's billions and billions of dollars passing through it every year. We need to be regulating it because otherwise it's not going to ever sort of um, fall in line with our idea of like what our ethics might be. So that's where I would say, again, like learning to be civically engaged is a really big part of, of helping the fashion industry get better. I would say more so than like buying the right thing. Although I'm also pro that. I mean, like right. I still, I, for me, it's just meant not shopping. Like yep. I just don't really shop anymore. And when I do, it's something that I'm like, I, I plan to be able to pass this on to the next generation. Like I'm going to take personal responsibility for this. Um, when it's done, you know, being in my closet, I don't get to be like, oh, I sent it to Goodwill and so I'm off the hook. Yeah. Like, I have to recognize it's going to go somewhere. And if I don't want it, you know, polluting someone else's backyard, like, I need to take responsibility for where it's going to go. Again, we could talk for hours about what you just said. What I thought was really important is our conversation keeps going, coming back to both and. Mm -hmm. Because it, you're not saying that it's not important for us to take individual action. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, what you are saying, though, is that is not, and, and I, I recently, that is a change that has happened in my mind, too, because for a while, especially for obvious reasons, 2016 to 2020, where nothing, it didn't seem like anything I could do civically and politically would ever matter. It seemed like we were, and I'm not saying we're not heading in that direction, but it seemed like things were headed on a really bad path, and we needed to organize, and our individual action, we needed to rally and grassroots and this, and that all and that's where most of my headspace was at and a lot of the work that I was doing. Not that that has changed significantly with this, with this administration, but it is so important. Like we could do all that, we could do all this, we could spend days organizing and doing all these individual actions and getting people. But if the, those in power, if the industries that are in power and the people regulating those industries are not doing their part, 
our work isn't going to yield all that much fruit. We could have thousands of people organized around an idea and we're going to do this and we're going to, we're going to treat our clothes this way and act this way. But if we don't have, if we're not also engaged with in civically and politically, then I'm not saying, I don't, I don't want to go as far as saying it's all for naught, but it needs to be both. And we need to be holding our leaders responsible and the industry leaders responsible to make, to make any sort of progress, right? Like it totally. has to be both and. And, I, and this is where I think, you know, even in terms of talking, like feeling like there are a lot of dead ends in, in the government, like I'm totally with you. And I feel like in many ways, I'm still just like still just trying to understand how American politics work. Like right. I didn't grow up sure. in this country. I don't feel like I have a great education around it. Like I'm still trying to learn myself, but like something I, I you know, sort of an example of this is like, I'm starting to get really passionate about public transit. It's one of the things I love about New York. It's Same. really easy to get around without a car. That's really important for decarbonizing our economy and sort of fighting climate change. One of the things that would make that easier is if biking felt safe and accessible for people. Okay, if everyone on my block suddenly decided to bike, that's great. And it would, you know, it would reduce emissions if all of us had been driving before. But if we live in a city where there aren't bike protected bike lanes, so good. we're yep. gonna get hit by a car yep. and it's not gonna be that compelling. That's where it's like, yes, we should as individuals you know, learn to get around by bike, sort of become, be more comfortable with that, figure out what that looks like and how that would sort of like our lifestyles might need to change. But it also would probably make a lot of sense for us to come together and organize not just to like support the bike companies in sort of this, this like corporate thing, but go to our city and say, hey, we really want protected bike lanes because we want to ride bikes and we want it to be safe for us and safe for our kids and safe for our neighbors. And that's where that both end can come in, I think, of recognizing that it doesn't have to all be like, big federal policy or nothing. Sometimes it means, what does it mean in my neighborhood? What does it mean in my city? And figuring out how to, how you can sort of create change that way. We can't turn our backs on a dysfunctional government because our country and our states and our cities and our towns are going to continue being run by governments. Right. We have to get in. We have to stay more. I'm like you. I came back at 20 with a very limited view of how things run. And I'm still recovering from that 18 years later. Amanda Littman, who also lives in Brooklyn, started run for something um, after working on the Obama oh, after working on the Hillary uh, campaign. When I interviewed her a few months ago, she said there are five hundred thousand positions that you can get elected for in this country. That's wild. Five hundred thousand. <laughs> there are still, uh, uh, th I think it's like thirty something states where being a coroner is a position you get elected to. There are so many things you can run Whoa. for and get elected to. And it's more, it is, it is high time, more than ever before, for us to take this both-and approach, not to forsake our dysfunctional government and just do grassroots shit. It is to do both-and. Because you're right, that bike thing, that bike example you just gave, that applies to everything. Totally. Food, clothing, our homes, solar, fossil fuels, uh, public transit, like it, every area of life if we just do the get everybody to start biking, well, then we have a bunch of dead people in the hospital because they got hit because there's no bike lanes. Mm -hmm. That again, that again, that is in the food industry, which I'm very passionate about. I don't want everybody to become vegan tomorrow because that will cause so many other problems. I want people to start taking it more seriously. And I want to advocate at a local level and like we need more regulations and we need to, I think we could all use to, you know, more inching closer to a plant-based diet, but it can't happen overnight. None of these things can or should happen overnight. 
it needs to be progressive and we need to be taking a very holistic approach to it. Um, God, I have so much more that I want to talk about, but we need to wrap this up. <laughs> um, so what are you shifting to in your work? Kind of describe, I know you've already alluded to it in a few different ways, but like, yeah, what are you wanting to focus on more in this next season of life? You're obviously really good at what you do. I've been helped by what Thank you're doing. You. Your writing, your voice um, has helped me in so many ways over the last few months. But so yeah, what are you shifting to and why is it important to me making this shift? Yeah, well, I mean, my shift has really been to climate and environment more broadly, as I said, because to me, it's it's very clear this isn't like one Right. This isn't one issue on on sort of a chessboard with all of these different pieces that are different issues. Like this is the chessboard. Yeah. Anything else you care about, you care about you care about police and sort of like justice in racial justice in America, you care about the clothing industry, you care about food, you care about whatever. Like it is going to be impacted. It is being impacted by climate change. And yep. so that is part of why I've seen sort of my role as as helping people make those connections and people who aren't necessarily like policy or energy wonks. Like I'm, I'm so grateful for those people who want to get really nerdy about, right. you know, energy policy. And I also recognize that that's not going to be everybody. So I, I really see some of my goal as bringing in, bringing people into the climate conversation who haven't necessarily seen themselves reflected there before. Um, that's and good. part of that is also, again, sort of focusing on, on solutions journalism. So really trying to help people understand like, Hey, there are people working on this. Um, we do need to understand this, the scale and the scope of the problem. But increasingly, I don't actually think that our issue is awareness. Like, especially this, Agreed. you know, in the last two years, last year, one in three Americans lived through an extreme weather event. Like we are starting to, my, my sort of story about the Philippines and, and understanding what climate meant for the Philippines used to feel unique. And now I'm like, oh, most people, even in the US, even wealthy people, like a lot of people are trying to under, like, starting to understand that this is going to impact them. It's going to impact their communities. So then it's a matter of saying, listen, it's not a lack of awareness. Our problem isn't that we don't know climate change is happening. It's that we we don't have the political will to fix it. Mm -hmm. Even though we have the solutions, the technology is there. Like we know what it takes. It takes leaving fossil fuels in the ground. We need to stop burning fossil fuels. That's sort of the baseline. But it's, so I, I think I see my work as trying to help people see where they might fit into this and understand what work is already being done in this space. Because for me, getting to see that there are people working on things and that there are solutions out there makes it feel like a very different conversation than if you just feel like, wow, the world is literally burning and there's nothing we can do. Yeah. I really want to help people figure out sort of where they fit into this climate story. I forget which climate conversation I was having on the podcast. Maybe it was with Dr. Heho, I forget. But I had a moment where I, I said something similar to what you said, or I, I realized that getting involved in the climate crisis is not an option for anybody because it is, it, in multiple ways, it affects everything we do. Mm-hmm. Well, no matter what you're passionate about, we'll be affected by climate. And also, it, we, it's the main issue because if we don't take care of it, if we, if we don't take care of our planet and it keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And we keep having more of these disasters. Abolishing our corrupt prison system won't matter because we won't be around. You know what I'm saying? To see yeah. the fruits of that system being abolished. This is the one that we should all be focused on and figuring out as I'm so glad you're going to be doing more and more in the future, helping people figure out where do I fit in? I can't do it all. Yeah, I can't do it all, but I need to fit in somewhere. 
this is an issue where every single person, regardless of what you're passionate about or where you feel called to work, you need to have your, you know, your work being represented in the climate space in some way. Right. And it's about figuring out how maybe what you're already doing, how it sort of dovetails. I mean, if you're working on housing justice, like there are all of these ways that that yes. intersects with climate. If you care about our carceral system, there are all of these ways that climate change is going to make conditions in prisons worse. And, you know, it's like understanding how these things, education, you know, whatever it is, like whatever your sort of thing is, there is some way that climate is going to intersect with it. So understanding that will prepare you to better sort of face the challenges that are going to come and, and make sure that you can sort of help your your sector or your business or your, you know, advocacy group or whatever it is, sort of be ready to meet that moment. Let's wrap up with this. You've referenced Rebecca Solnit's uh, Hope in the Dark mm -hmm. multiple times. I assume you would recommend everyone read it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you posted uh, a little while back on your Instagram a quote that I think would be, I think it perfectly sums up what we've been trying to say and really how we should land this plane of a conversation. Uh, in Hope in the Dark, she's quoting Paul Goodman in this quote, suppose you had the revolution you are talking and dreaming about. Suppose your side had won and you had this kind of society that you wanted. How would you live, you personally, in that society? Start living that way now, end quote. Like, that's it. Yes. That is it. Think about what you want and don't wait for it to come. Start doing it now. If we all did that, everything would look different. Totally. Because we all want better for ourselves, for our kids, for their kids. We all want better. No matter what uh, we're talking about, climate, uh, income, and, like we want them to make more money, whatever it is. So start living that way now. Why wait until it's better? Yeah. Things will come a lot quicker if we start living that way now. Yeah. Adrian Marie Brown, who's the author of Emergent Strategy, talks about um, thinking about justice in fractals, which are these sort of patterns in nature. Think of like a fern where it's like the small pattern and then it's repeated and repeated and gets bigger. And Adrian Marie Brown talks about that as well, being like you start enacting justice or you start enacting the thing you want to see, even at the smallest level. So maybe you don't know how to scale it up. Maybe you don't know how to do the big thing. You start to do it in the little ways as you're also working on the big thing and you sort of do it all at once. It seems, it feels to me like a similar kind of thing. I it's like it. we start living into the future we want to see rather than waiting for it to show up. I love it. Whitney, this was a joy. Thank you so much for doing it on such short notice. You're amazing. Yeah. And hopefully we can do it again sometime. Sounds good. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Friends and damn givers, thank you for showing up and for spending some time with Whitney and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have so many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.